There are some very good reasons to be afraid of the dark, and Fright Night is one of them. In 1985, writer-director Tom Holland unleashed upon the world an affectionate tribute of classic monster movies with a bite all its own. Fright Night resurrected the vampire subgenre from the crypt and spawned a rabid fanbase that is still under its spell 35 years later. So grab a wooden stake, sit back, and join us as we review and discuss one of the most purely fun horror movies of all time. Welcome to Fright Night! For real. Soon you'll all believe I'm right We're all in for a most frightening night Fright night, yeah, baby Buzz off, evil This is 35 years of Fright night And Justin, please never do that again Right, baby I'm just so, so excited I'm in old school DJ mode here, ghouls, ghosts, and all you slashers out there. Maybe and a vampires. few bloodsuckers. Yeah. Yes, we can't can't not include you. We just could not let this anniversary pass without doing a special anniversary retrospective of one of my personal favorite vampire movies, as put so perfectly by our friend Voice Off with that amazing introduction. This movie is a very special movie to so many people, especially in the horror community, and I think it has transcended the genre in so many ways. Um, It got a remake, it's got some sequels, uh, one, in fact, that you are not a big fan of, which I'm sure we'll get to in this discussion. But we'd like to welcome you to this episode and just start right off here in White Sauce with how we usually start these B-sides. Do you remember your first experience with Tom Holland's Fright Night? I don't. I'm sure I saw it somewhere, whether it was on TV or a movie that I rented, but it has kind of become a staple for me every Halloween. I like to cuddle up with some candy corn and pumpkin beer and watch Fright Night every year. But Justin, do you recall your first experience with Fright Night? I I certainly do. And actually, um, I was kind of a novice to this movie until I was in my early 20s, back when I would actually step foot into a Walmart. Yeah, just being completely honest, I would actually go into a Walmart back then. I remember like there used to be this small section in my local Walmart where during Halloween season, they would put like bargain bin horror movies. And I remember the first time I saw it, it was just the DVD, and I remember seeing the poster. It's that cover, right? It's the cover. Iconic, I remember seeing yeah. it in the video store as a kid. Obviously, back then, I've mentioned this on the show on plenty of occasions, my parents would never let me rent anything from the horror section. It just never happened. So I was like, man, this cover, I remember this. This looks great. And I just looked at the back, immediately purchased it. And ever since then, I think I was like 22 or something around there. It's been, you know, a staple for me in my household. I own like, I don't know how many copies of it. Obviously, I've got a signed copy by Tom Holland. It's just one of my favorite movies ever. I met Chris Sarandon a few years ago because of this movie. So it's a big one for me. And I'm really excited 
excited to be here to talk about it for its 35th anniversary. Man, all these anniversaries of these movies are making me feel so fucking old, but <laughs> let's get down to it, man. Let's get down to it. For those uninitiated with you know the idea of Fright Night, where it came from and what it's all about, why don't you fill our listeners in? So this was a, a passion project for writer-director Tom Holland, who was hot off the success of his script for Psycho 2 which was a big hit for the studio. Uh, Yet they had... So even though Tom Holland kind of got the job for Fright Night because of Psycho 2, the studio still had very little faith in the movie. So they basically gave Holland very little money and didn't have much oversight over the film. So this is really Tom Holland's vision through and through. So apparently the budget was only like nine million or something like that. Yeah, so pretty sparse as far as these movies go. So uh, as a fan of classic horror, he really poured his heart and soul into this script and it radiates from every frame. There's a great behind the scenes documentary, which I'm sure we'll touch upon called You're So Cool, Brewster, the story of Fright Night. And in it, Tom Holland recounts that he was like he was practically giddy writing the script. Like he was so excited by it because he was so tickled by the idea that he had of a teenager who suspects that a bloodsucker has moved in right next door to him so basically the plot itself is basically alfred hitchcock's rear window with kind of like a supernatural twist to it and that's what i think works for the movie because it has very much the mood and atmosphere of a traditional gothic vampire story but it places the setting in modern suburbia and i think grounding the story into a reality that the audience and especially a young audience recognizes helped vampires to experience a resurgence in the genre which you know vampire movies had kind of run its course by this point in 1985 they were viewed as old and stuffy so that made it right for parody there were many parodies in the 80s but thanks to fright night you know films like the lost boys and near dark and uh, buffy the vampire slayer were not far to follow that's correct yeah i mean even the same year the the horror comedy i would say more of a comedy with jim carrey once bitten which is about vampires which is like a total satire on the idea came out and you know obviously it didn't do that well i haven't without seen fright night oh well you know that i like that movie is <laughs> cornball as it be you love um, that kind of trash of course we I all do trash, here on man. b-sides I like to lay in it and roll around in it like a pig. But um, (laughs) seriously, I mean, we got so much after this movie. We have so much to thank Fright Night for in so many ways. Uh, I love the idea of Tom Holland writing this script. And he had proclaimed that he was on the floor laughing when he was writing the script because of how funny it was. He's like, you know, everyone's going to think this kid is mad. No one's going to believe him. It's one thing for someone that's being a voyeur, if you will, someone that's a peeping Tom looking around at his neighbors thinking this guy might have killed his wife. But it's another thing to be like, dude, it's a fucking vampire living next door to me. So a brilliant idea and melding together basically like comedy with horror and also like an 80s, you know, coming of age teen movie, which was very in at the time, almost like a John Hughes twist. You have this kid. He's a normal kid, but he's dealing with shit that teenagers are dealing with. You got a girlfriend, you're failing trigonometry, and you have a vampire moving next door. I mean, what could get worse for this kid? Exactly. And the tone is perfect, too, because Fright Night, it's scary, but it's never horrifying. It's funny, but it's not an over-the-top farce. Like, it's a very tricky balance, but I think Tom Holland's execution is so sure-handed that it just simply works. In comparison with other horror movies at the time, perhaps, or especially the boon of slash movies which was happening around this time and in fact they kind of poke fun at the fact that all audiences want nowadays are maniacs in a ski mask you know hacking up young virgins young virgins (laughs) so uh 
in, in comparison to the slasher m- movies, it's relatively tame. I mean, there are a couple of very like gooey, gruesome deaths, but it's not like overly gory in comparison. Um, I think it's a film that could please everyone. I mean, I'm not saying bring your young kids to this or show your five year old this. But now, like- now, now, we know how you like to put young children in danger. <laughs> you would love to s- sit a five year old in front of this movie and make them watch it. On a mid as a midnight movie, I'm sure it might uh, it might traumatize them, but I think it's a movie that could appeal to a lot of different people, young or old. I definitely I, I could agree with that to an extent. I mean, it, it is lighthearted enough; it's fun, and I think that's the key thing about this movie is it's fun all throughout. You know, Charlie's our main character, Charlie Brewster, and you kind of see things through his eyes, and I mean. A lot of funny things happen to this kid, and you have to just go along for the ride with him. It's a roller coaster, for sure. It's definitely a thrill ride. This is that haunted house ride that comes to your local carnival that's been around since 1955 that's <laughs> never been fixed. Things pop out at you and go boo, and it creaks, but it's fun, and you love doing it every year. And I think this is a great opportunity to start discussing the cast of characters here. I mean, starting off with Charlie Brewster, played by William Ragsdale. Tom Holland had come out and said he actually had even seen Charlie Sheen for this role, which um, not, would not have worked. No, he, I mean, he's just too good looking. And that's what he actually told Charlie Sheen during the audition. Um, he wanted someone good looking enough, but someone that was believable in the role. And I I, I totally agree. I think William Ragsdale does a, a perfect job of embodying Charlie Brewster, this kid who is at his heart, at his core, what we are, Lois Sauce. He's a horror fan. That's right. And he, he very much fits that archetypal everyday 80s kid. You know, as you mentioned, he's failing trigonometry. And really, at the end of the day, all he wants to do is watch horror movies and get laid. So I think we can well, all attempt relate. to get laid. <laughs> He's trying to get laid, at least. I think we can all relate to that. So unfortunately, I mean, I going to critique the movie a little bit along the way. But oh, to, here it comes. to me, I don't think that Charlie Brewster, there's not much to him beyond that. I think he's the least interesting of all the characters at play here. And I also have problems with the initial premise. Uh, just just th- the fact that I feel like it would work better if Charlie were cast or written as just a little bit younger. I feel like if he were younger, it would be more believable that he sold right away Jerry's a vampire. And it would be easier to make sense of the fact too, that he believes like a washed up actor could actually help him in defeating a real vampire. So to me, like, because he is an older teenager, it doesn't really, it doesn't really work for me all that much. Um, I have a problem with the age of the actors in general. It's not any fault of the actors necessarily, but they are playing older than I feel like the characters. (laughs) Come the fuck on, dude. Amanda Bierce is playing a 16 year old and she's like 26 in the movie or something. Yeah. It's like, again, it's not any fault of her own and I'm not remarking upon her looks that she looks old or anything, but she's very clearly not a high schooler. Like she's come on. This was, this was traditional fashion in the eighties. You always cast like 30 year old fucking actors in the roles of teenagers. It was just the norm. I mean, that's, this isn't saved by the bell where you actually got real teenagers and watch them grow throughout a series or throughout a movie or anything like that. But I totally understand where you're coming from. I think Charlie's interesting because he's, for me, at least, and I think to audiences at the time, horror fans going to see Fright Night in the theater, this was the first time you actually saw someone representing you. This is a horror fan. This is a guy that every Friday night, he watches, you know, what we all grew up watching, horror movies. If he was a younger kid, maybe if his parents were, I mean, well, I'd say single parent, because 
We're never actually told why there's no father in the picture. It's never mentioned. It's just kind of like single mom syndrome. But she might be a bad parent letting her little boy watching these Friday Night Fright flicks, you know? So, I mean, maybe that's partially the reason. Also, Loisos, you wouldn't have the relationship at the center, as well as the fact that the kid's trying to get laid, which every teenager can relate to. There, I'm there's sure most of the kids sexuality, sure. But if you cast like a 16 or 17 year old kid, it, again, it might have been easier to swallow. But you see this, you know, 25, 26 year old playing much younger than he is. I don't know. It, it, it's a nitpick. It's a nitpick. But he does, he does have a good relationship with Amanda Beers' Amy Peterson, who's very much the girl next door, even though. I do think she is very obviously too old to be playing a high schooler. She fits the character and the character herself is necessary because otherwise the movie would have been a total sausage fest. You'd have no women. And that's something that Holland also remarks that he wrote the first draft of the script without Amy. And that's such a crucial element because you have to have that relationship because she brings a sweetness to the movie. She's innocent, but with a lot of spunk. And I think she brings in a love story that teens in the audience could connect to and that gives a heart to the movie. Yeah. And she's also got a very old school sensibility to her character. She's got that, as you said perfectly, this spunkiness to her, like a 1940s, 1950s spunk to her. She's very classic. Girl Next Door. They, they, you know, and they went against type here because at the time, basically in all the slasher flicks, you get like these hot blonde bombshells, uh, chicks with their tits hanging out and all, which was very welcome by me. But I mean, at the same time, it really grounded the movie in a true teen movie suburbia, which I think really helps the movie in the long run. But we got to get, we got to move on here because Amanda's great in the movie, but we got to get to our, our main big bad, the man himself, Jerry Dandridge. Chris Sarandon, who just be, literally... Be still, my heart. He oozes charisma out of that fucking tall, gray leather jacket and red scarf. God damn it. Why can't I look like that? Can I please? I, I mean, I just want that think turtleneck. possible? I just want that turtleneck. I want the jacket. <laughs> like, I literally want to be him in this movie. How much... I mean, sh- dude, he shows how much charisma he has by biting an apple. Like, I'm sure ladies at the time watching this movie in the theater were, like, wetting their pants based on this guy just eating this apple. I'm like, what kind of effect could I ever have on a woman like that? Never. It's never going to happen. So, I, I love Chris Sarandon in this role. He absolutely lives it up. I mean, and when he got cast for this, he had a lot of worry about being in a horror movie. Like, he had been nominated for an Academy Award leading up to this as a Best Supporting Actor role. Um, you know, he was a traditional stage actor as well. So when he got handed this script, he was like, frightened, I can't do this. And when he read it, he was like, well, this is great. Absolutely. And I think vampires have always been associated with raw, seductive, animalistic sexuality. And Sarandon definitely embodies all of those uh, qualities. What a legend. I mean, Prince Humperdinck from The Princess Bride, Jack Skellington from The Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, just, I, I love this guy. I'd love to meet him one day. I'm super jealous that you got to meet him. But um, uh, just as a, as a heads up, if you do, he's a germaphobe. So no handshakes. Well, certainly not at this point either. Well, after COVID, who knows if he'll even do them? Because I know he does a lot of cons, but he was one of the nicest, sweetest, relaxed guys ever. Definitely really passionate and, and appreciative of his Fright Night fans. So I think he... He doesn't get mentioned often enough when people talk about cinematic vampires, but I think he's one of the quintessential vampires just because he rides that line of being suave and debonair and a little bit smarmy, good sense of humor, but he's also like a predator, a legitimate threat, especially in the club scene where he is seductive and he's hypnotizing Amy and putting her under his spell. But he also demonstrates in that scene that he's a killing machine and not to be fucked with. Yeah, 100%. He has the best overall 
arc of any vampire I know of in the 80s as far as you see the opening of the movie. He slides right in, smooth and seductive, and then he basically is a predator to everything around him. And I love, you know, kind of like the urban legend that I mean, we see that Charlie is experiencing a lot of this through the television, through the news, like all these different random people are dying. He sees that young, what we're considered to know as a prostitute, go into the house next door and then she's missing after that. So I love that it kind of builds the character without us even having to see him kill anybody. You know what I mean? It adds this mythic nature to the character. And like I said, you said it perfectly, but I mean, vampires leading up until this point, everyone thinks Christopher Lee, everyone thinks, uh, you know, Lugosi, yeah, Lugosi, uh, excuse me there for a moment while I was trying to think of the most iconic Dracula of all time. Um, But he's, he's, the perfect 80s vampire, I think, even better than anyone else. I mean, a lot of people think of The Lost Boys, and which is another one of my favorite movies. But I personally, I think Jerry's the best 80s vampire. I would have to agree with you. So we have our threat, we have our villain, but we also, you know, Charlie needs to recruit someone to help him. And I think the introduction of Peter Vincent into the movie is really what makes this movie come alive. So Peter Vincent, of course, being an amalgamation of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, two iconic uh, horror legends, is played by Roddy McDowell. And I guess in the movie, he plays a version of himself in his old movies because he's like he he is this actor turned syndicated horror host. So at the very beginning, you're seeing the movie that he that Peter Vincent is acting in and he introduces himself. I am Peter Vincent vampire killer and you're like oh okay so he's playing a character named peter vincent in the movie and his name is also peter vincent whatever it doesn't matter i I suppose so but this character is necessary because when holland is sitting around coming up with this idea he's like what would this kid actually do if a, a vampire came next door, would he just attempt to kill the vampire on his own? Who would he reach out to for help? The, the cops wouldn't believe him, which we see happen in the movie. And he's like, of course, he's going to go to Vincent Price, his, his, you know, his local old horror host. And that's what I love so much about this character of Peter Vincent. And Roddy was good friends with both Peter Cushing and especially Vincent Price, who would come over for dinner on a normal basis at his house. You know, so he knew these kinds of people. He knew what this horror host thing was all about. And he had played in so many different movies leading up to this point. He was like the classic veteran old school actor at this point when he got in the movie. And he's definitely by far one of the best things about the movie. I mean, you can't have this movie without Peter Vincent. Absolutely. And McDowell, he completely hams it up. I love his at the beginning he's this very like washed up actor he's reluctant to help charlie so um he's almost like this gildoroy lockhart-esque character from harry potter and the chamber of secrets um i'm a huge harry potter fan so i had to throw that in there didn't you gildoroy lockhart because he he's this very cowardly fraud basically but unlike gildoroy lockhart who remains a complete worm throughout the movie. Peter Vincent really is the heart of the film and he has the most growth out of any of these characters because he has a redemption arc in which he decides to do the right thing and step up and be a hero. And that's why I think aside from some of the technical elements, Peter Vincent, that character is the best thing about the movie far and away. Exactly. And I, and I love seeing him kind of being a naysayer, being this huge horror host, and basically just putting it off as a joke. And then when you see him start to realize that this is the real deal, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is after, you know, Charlie's friends convince him to come over with Charlie to the house to see if Jerry's really a vampire, just to prove to him that vampires aren't real. He's about to leave the house and he has his little mirror 
that he that he had as a prop from one of his movies and he just randomly pulls it out to look just like he's only starting to think that it's possible and he notices that Jerry's reflection is not in the mirror and he drops the mirror and that's that's the realization and that's when he freaks out he's like I'm fucking out of here it's like freaks him out you know that's the moment where you're like man this shit this shit's for real and, and I love seeing the reaction that he gets and his character changes from there he becomes very serious about this at first being very uh, weary of being involved and then after that getting himself involved because he wants to really show who he is obviously he had just been fired from his job as the horror host and he needs purpose and I love that he's like this 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 quaint old guy who lives alone in this small apartment with all his small memorabilia pieces around him. And you get to see the backstory of who this guy is. And then he's like, I need to be this. I need he he grasps for this reality to kind of prove who he is. And I love that. You're totally right. Absolutely. So Justin, there's one more character that we haven't talked about yet. Who could it possibly be? To what do I owe this dubious pleasure? <laughs> You're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I could never do that cackle. God damn it. Stephen Jeffries is evil. Ed is the funnest part of this movie. I just love him so, so much, so much to the point, Lois us that when I revisited the film recently to have this discussion with you, I bought fraternity vacation just because it stars Amanda Bierce and Stephen Jeffries together in one movie. And how and, was it, Justin? Oh, it's a fucking blast. God, do I love sexed up politically incorrect beach movies from the 1980s. <laughs> you know, of the which there were many. Peeping Toms, trying to get laid, lots of 80s hotties all over the place and boobies galore. But yes, it's great. And I just absolutely love him in this role. I mean, another actor that when he saw the script, he was like, "Ah, I'm not sure about this. But literally, he's probably, I would say, other than Peter Vincent, the most memorable and iconic character. When you look at T-shirts for Fright Night, when you look at anything, I mean, it's his face basically with the cross on his head. So, I mean, the kid is great in the movie. And I got to tell you. I would kill to know how I could get some of that wardrobe, that weird red Michael Jackson fucking thing with the suspenders, the red thriller shirt that he wears at school. Like, I want to be him. Definitely a style icon. I think I I like the idea of Evil Ed as a character. He's the kind of the obnoxious kid that tags along. And I would have loved to have seen him actually have a real friendship with Charlie because it seems like Charlie's always like Evil Ed is always getting on Charlie's nerves. And Charlie's like, get out of here, Evil Ed. He calls him Evil Ed for, I guess, because he's evil. I, I don't know. I don't understand that nickname. Really. Don't call me evil. Yeah. He doesn't like it, obviously. Yeah. But so it seems like they get on each other's case a lot. But see, I don't know. I struggle with this because he, he is kind of like he has a lot of energy and you're constantly waiting for the next time Evil Ed's going to be on screen. He's also just not that likable a character in terms of um, what he adds to the movie. I think I much prefer him as a vampire. When he transforms into the vampire, he provides oh, some oh, of the no best doubt. moments in this film. Some of the most memorable, you know, dinners in the oven. Your <laughs> dinners in the oven with the fucking raggedy. Yeah, I mean, that's some of the most iconic. I mean, anything 80s horror you think of, you think of that amazing makeup. And I know we're going to get to the special effects and the makeup in a little bit here. But him is when he, he literally just had so much fucking fun. Once they put that makeup, dude, he's just literally oozing out of his fucking gills like every bit of charisma and he's just having a blast with the character I, I i just like him overall i guess because growing up when i was in high school i'm sure you can slightly relate to me loisos even though you were a cool kid in school um i was an outcast man i had piercings i fucking wore clothes that no one else was wearing i would wear makeup once in a while like i don't give a fuck i'll openly admit that i'm proud of who i was then and proud of who i am now but i was that kid that liked horror movies and liked weird heavy metal music and stuff and people looked down on that a 
lot of the popular kids thought you were weird because of that. And back then in the 80s, especially when you hear stories, when you hear people talk about this, especially like Joe Dante and a lot of these directors, John Landis, when you hear them talk about what it was like to grow up to be a monster kid in high school, even before that in the 80s, you were looked down upon like no one liked that. You'd be the minority in school. You wouldn't have any friends that liked that same thing. Or very You'd be few the sole, friends, yeah. The sole kid, you know, by yourself watching a Saturday matinee of horror thrillers, you know, from the 40s and 50s. That's that's who you were. But you, you'd order famous monsters of Filmland and you would look at it yourself and you'd want to figure out how they did these monster effects and the blood and the gore and everything. It was a very small minority of people. So when I, when I think of the character of Evil Ed, or as we should say, his actual full name... Uh, Edward Thompson, I relate to that character. So he's a little bit weird. He's a little bit high strung. He seems like he's got a very high energy. Maybe the kid needs some fucking, I don't know, ADHD medication or something. (laughs) But I think he's the kid that hangs out with Charlie. Charlie's like the semi-popular kid, but he still hangs out with the weird because they both like the same thing kind of kid. Oh, sure. Definitely, definitely. Well, you mentioned the special effects and makeup, and we need to move on to that because it is outstanding. Especially the look of the vampires. I love the design the long spindly fingers the fangs and especially the spectacular prosthetic that looks like a shark's mouth this like gaping maw that for my money constitutes one of the freakiest and most nightmarish vampire designs in history it's one of the most accidental yet iconic horror designs in the history of the film medium itself it's on the poster like it's on the poster which <laughs> no one involved in the production of the movie wanted that in the movie it was a last minute effect tom holland asked for it it was done without payment and everyone when they saw it when they were filming it were like oh we can't have this in the movie and then it ended up being on the poster and now when you think of 80s movie posters especially horror movies fright night is certainly one of the most iconic and i think that shark mouth as they call it is probably you know, one of the most memorable scenes in the entire movie. And it's terrifying. I mean, it doesn't matter that it's just a frozen face makeup. A lot of people at the time thought, well, that's going to be considered fakey fake. Everyone was trying to re-up, you know, or up the other filmmakers' movies and all the effects on the movies that came before it. And that's what's so exciting about this movie is that it was made at a time when all these special effects guys, you know, you got the Steve Johnsons and this movie's Rick Stratton, Mark Brian Wilson, Richard Endlin, who was an icon in the scene, and then uh, Randy Cook, who was a sculptor on the film, among many other people involved. You know, everyone was trying to just up one of what the last movie did. And this movie shines so fucking much. In my opinion, I think out of all the horror movies of the 80s, I think this movie has the best list of the most memorable effects of any of them. I mean, when you add the shark mouth and, of course, we've got the giant flying jerry bat and everything, the puppet, it's it's just so iconic and so memorable and so fun. And, like, it adds this flavor to the movie that's unlike the slasher movies where it's just kill after kill after kill. Here, they put that invention in their creativity into trying to create these awesome props. That's right. And the the mouth especially, I guess some people could say that it looks like a prosthetic, but for me, they did such a good job of making it slobbery and slimy and look tactical and real. And that goes for the, um, the werewolf scene too. I guess you could call it a werewolf. It's a wolf form of a vampire, but it's basically a werewolf. It's a werewolf. Just call it a werewolf. <laughs> when Evil Ed transforms and you have the effect of him transforming back into uh, human form as he's staked, 
you could tell like they put a lot of effort into showing that real kind of animalistic yet human kind of trapped in between quality of it where like you can tell that wolf is suffering and that wolf is bleeding yeah, very, out and it's, fa- it's very, a very deformed yeah it's a very hard to watch scene because it feels real to me um even though you could look at it in a technical manner and say well that looks like a guy in a costume yeah it's a guy in a costume but the attention to detail is there and, well, a guy, well, a guy in a makeup, an eighteen-hour makeup, mind you. Well, that's you know? that's just it too. Like they spent, you know, any time between eight or eighteen hours in in the makeup chair, and I don't know how the actors didn't go completely insane in the meantime. But then, like the contact lenses they had to use for the vampires must have been a living hell because they were like made of like hard plastic, basically. So or or, or glass, yeah. Where and, and it was a new thing at the time where the lenses weren't like a hot commodity. They weren't using lenses in all these movies, so when they would use them, they should only be in the actor's eyes for a short period of time and some of these actors had to wear these lenses like all day long yeah so they certainly suffered for the sake of you know the art uh and they should be commended and of course the special effects artists should be commended as well um there's so many memorable moments in this whether you have you know the billy cole character melting into green goo and then you have like the bones scattering all over the place or you mentioned the bat creature that jerry turns into which I just want to keep that puppet, uh, you know, that little bat. I just want to keep it as a Isn't pet. it cute, though? Yeah, I want to keep Isn't it Isn't it, like, kind of cute, though? Like, you see this thing reaching to kill Peter Vincent, and it's, like, biting the shit out of this thing that he's trying to hold up so that he doesn't get killed. But it's adorable. <laughs> I mean, and they make the best out of this small budget with shooting these effects. And to go back to what you said about the shark mouth, another thing that I love about it, what makes it work so well is the way it's lit. Yeah, for it's sure. lit beautifully uh, and perfectly the way that it would be lit in almost like a hammer movie. You know what I mean? With the shadow across it, but you see the eyes brightly lit so that they glisten in the light. It's perfect. It's done amazingly. And I think that I love the howling a lot. You know that I love the howling and I love American Werewolf in London. It's one of my favorite movies ever made. Those two transformation scenes are highly regarded. Rob Boutine and Rick Baker. But what I think Steve Johnson does here is he tried to one-up them in a different way. This is a D-transformation, and I don't think it gets enough love. It's extremely emotional. Where you watched American Werewolf and it was this painful experience where it was really hard to watch, but it was fun. This is hard because we already know Evil Ed. We knew him before he was a vampire. And unlike you, I think he's a likable character and I relate to him. So when we see him going through this extremely painful situation and you're seeing Peter Vincent's reaction to him transforming from the wolf into this half like Quasimodo-esque like wolf boy creature thing, it's painful to watch. It's like one of the most emotional scenes in the entire movie movie it's the only time i think where i could slightly critique the movie and say well the rest of the movie's fun it's spooky it's scary but here it gets serious and i'm not sure it works a hundred percent but for me at least um it works enough to be like whoa this transformation scene has my attention well technically the scene works i mean technically it's a marvel i'm saying as far as emotionally being being a watcher and emotionally yeah yeah, it would land better if we if I liked Evil Ed if more you, as a character. You, Lois. Uh, and we spent I, a little bit more time with him and Charlie and their friendship. But Charlie isn't even in the scene. It's Peter Vincent. So, you know, it's it, it's great for what it is. And it's just one of the many standout um, effect sequences in the movie. We have to talk about, like, the end, where they pull out literally all the stops. Yeah, the end is, 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 a, is a great explosion of fun. I mean, what I love about this movie is it builds and it builds and it builds. And then at the end, it's a, it's a gigantic, fu- it just, they just tear the fucking house down and give you everything. As you already touched on, 
Um, you know, Billy, who is Jerry's right hand man, we didn't really touch on him that much. Which, uh, Billy Coldplay by Jonathan Stark. Yeah. He is basically, I mean, I think they're gay lovers secretly. I'm pretty sure they are. I mean, they caress each other. They're in each other's arms at one point. I mean, it looks like they could be gay lovers. I don't at know how point, you feel about that. At one point, Billy gets on his knees and you're like, whoa, is something going to happen here? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's entirely fine that if Jerry's bi, I mean, he's a vampire. It is the 80s after all. So it would actually work perfectly if he was banging both sides. But, there is there is um, a, definitely a sexuality there. And I think I don't think it was intentional by the actors, but I think Tom Holland has gone on record and said like, yeah, I just kind of put it in there and uh it came out naturally but well that's their that's that's the director's politically correct way of now being like yeah sure fine sure Think of yeah it the way you want because back in the 80s like everything was fucking gay and no one knew any better anyway um unlike hey listen we we reviewed freddy's revenge we love that fucking movie it's one of the gayest horror movies ever made if you haven't listened to that episode as a as a, as a, as a shameless plug here go listen to that i know the the, the billy melting effect the green ooze all over the place the question is, is he a zombie? Is he a vampire? Why is it that he turns into green goo? Because we're led to believe he goes out during the daytime in the movie. Why is he melting this way? I thought he was human. So Who that's cares? A question. I know, but it's just saying, I mean, you're trying to get like all practical about relationships and character in this movie. And it's like, well, Billy's supposed to be a normal guy. And then he just turns into this weird, like gooey creature thing and then dies. But it is, it is one of the most impressive effects in the entire movie. Well, I have questions about the ending too. You know, when you see Amy, when she's fully transformed into a vampire, cause she does get bitten by Jerry. Boobies. Her, her bust size increases uh, spontaneously. Suddenly her hair is grown out and seemingly a different color. Like, I don't know how that's supposed <laughs> to happen. That always confused yeah. me. It's supernatural, man. He turned her. They just wanted to turn into like a sexy Marilyn Monroe-esque vampire character. And very well put. I mean, but Amanda Bierce plays that character in that version of the role amazingly. Like she literally puts it on. It's a totally different, you know, uh, version of the character than the traditional Amy. You know, she's got like the, the, the fucking thick, heavy blouse and sweatshirt she's wearing earlier on in the movie. And in this, she's supposed to be sexy. And I'm just being honest here. I grew up knowing Amanda Bierce from Married with Children. And she's like, not sexy at all in that show. Like, she's the farthest thing from sexy that I can imagine. So I came to this movie after I'd already known her from that. But she does a great job. And I mean, obviously, they wanted her to grow and become more sexual. And I guess in the 80s, big boobs were a thing. They still are. But back then, even more so. Um, every kid had Playboy underneath his mattress back in 1985. So I understand the idea behind it. But Oh, sure. I love how she turns, and I think that the, the, the scene where Jerry turns her is amazing. It's a very sensual scene, uh, very well done for, you know, a, a director such as Tom Holland, which, which is kind of like a, he was a new new up-and-coming director at this point. But all the effects, though, are really what make this movie, and that's what horror fans really look for when they watch this. It's, it's the, I mean, the three stages of transformation as far as makeup for Jerry, it's amazing the way he starts off, and then he gets more decrepit and older and more ugly and grotesque in the movie good is, good I, escalation I, yeah yeah good escalation there and his death too um is is another standout I, i'm a little bit confused because they talk about the fact that every they remark that everything in the movies that is effective against a vampire works but that doesn't seem to be the case because look it seems like vampires can actually withstand being staked because they they stake jerry and then evil ed survives at the end supposedly well presumably so i'm I, we'll get to that. it's a little inconsistent but but so when sunlight finally comes into the room and burns the creature the bat creature we get this amazing 
amazing puppet, the skeletal bat puppet that Richard Enlund had originally developed. It was the original librarian puppet for Ghostbusters. That yeah, was the arms and everything. Yeah, that's right. They thought it would scare too many children. I mean, the librarian ghost that they ended up using still scared me as a kid, but this thing's awesome. It, it just like bursts into flames and it's on fire and it's just like the skeletal bat creature. It looks well, like the um like oh, a, the, man. the cover of a heavy metal album or something. It's awesome. I love the way that I love the way Jerry's death finally happens because there's a great build up to it. There's a lot of cat and mouse in there where Jerry knows he's in for it and he's basically cornered Peter Vincent and, and Charlie comes in to save the day. And he doesn't just die like in this lame, you know, burning and turning into mud on the floor type of death. He gets shot across the fucking room by a pulley against the wall. And Steve Johnson really, really wanted to make this death special. Up until this point, he had, he had reflected on how we saw vampires die in other movies before this. And he really wanted to make the actual practical, you know, effect of seeing a physical thing burn to death, like burn and melt and it's done so beautifully and so memorably. But when you think about it, it's it's crazy how they made this happen. I mean, he went on record in the, in the documentary and said that after they did this effect, he was so happy. He didn't even think about the fact that like all the chemicals they used to make this effect actually burned his shoes and burned his feet. And he couldn't walk for almost two weeks after doing this effect because he had to come up with this concoction of chemicals that would actually melt this device, this this prosthetic in the way they needed it to for the movie. And it just looks beautiful on screen. I mean, these are the kinds of effects, Loisos, that you and I yearn for when we watch modern horror movies, when they do things CGI. And sure, it can look fine or semi-realistic, but we miss when effects gurus would go in and and actually destroy things and actually create a prosthetic or a maquette of, a, of an actor made up and then actually destroy it. And I just, I just, I just watched I'm the- at a loss for words because when I think about it, it's... It's just so amazing what we were we, we got to experience in this movie. Absolutely. I mean, recently I just watched a documentary, Gremlins, a puppet show, uh, or a puppet story, excuse me, where they interview, it's basically like a slideshow uh, where, where you have Chris Wallace, the special effects artist behind Gremlins, going over old footage and kind of narrating over the footage and all of these old archival photos about the intensive process of the special effects in this movie in Gremlins. And talking about how they created the when Stripe melts at the end, like creating that melting gooey mess at the end. So I just you're right. I just yearn for that. That's what I think makes these movies so effective. These 80s horror movies that you and I love so much. I mean, you compare it to the 2011 remake of Fright Night, which I don't know how you feel about it. You can weigh in 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 just a moment. But uh, for me, the remake is just fine uh, for what it is. It's fine. But you look at the vampire effects and the transformation in the Fright Night remake, and it's all CG. You know, there's no special effects. There's um, no special practical effects. So to me, CGI starts to feel very ordinary um, because we've seen it all before. Whereas if you have something tangible in front of you, something uh, something tangible that you can look at and see, wow, someone worked really hard on something that. physical, yeah, something practical. That makes a yeah. difference. So, I mean, what are your opinions on, well, first of all, the Fright Night remake in general, we'll mention it, um, but also that in comparison to what we see in this original film. Well, Honestly, I did not see the Fright Night remake in theaters. I specifically made the decision to not support it, which I actually regretted because overall, 
I miss Anton Yelchin so, so much. He's one of the best young talents that we've ever lost. I think he was extremely talented and amazing. And, and anything we saw him in, especially Green Room, which was one of the last things that we saw him do. He was just absolutely brilliant. Um, Colin Farrell. And I love him as Charlie. And I like Colin Farrell as Jerry. Yeah. Um, the movie itself, within modern terms of a remake, is perfectly fine. I, I, I don't think it's awful. It's just... It lacks a lot of that humor and that heart, though. It's just kind of very one note the entire time. And it was very dark, too. It was hard to see what was happening. Granted, I did see it in theaters in 3D, so maybe the 3D made everything look even darker. I see. I, I That just shows how much I know. that I didn't even know that movie was done in 3D. It certainly was. And some of the effects I still remember, like when Jerry throws the motorcycle, like they're driving away and Jerry throws the motorcycle into the back of the car, and that was very effectively done in 3D. To, to me, it just seemed to it not, seemed to not have much color i know they wanted to make it like darker and more edgy for a modern audience but to me it just doesn't it's not nearly as memorable as this um it was also at a time when you know they were trying to mute everything they were trying to make everything look muted and cold you know like a lot of these thriller shows now like a show i'm getting into that i love so much like ozark or some of the stephen king adaptations like the outsider everything is like bleach white you know what i mean it's just desaturated so that was at a time when they were that meant it would look cool and stylish if it didn't have any color to it but it's the exact opposite of what Fright Night was in 1985 because it's extremely colorful. Yeah. I mean, we even have, when you think about Charlie's room, he's got that giant, you know, the beer Coors Light, I believe it's Coors Light sign on his wall, you know, their outfits, the wardrobe, everything about the movie is colorful other than like the vampire stuff. But one thing we cannot forget to talk about, which is one of my absolute favorite things about Fright Night is Brad Fidel's amazing synth score. Now, anyone that knows me knows that I'm a huge synthwave aficionado. I love all things synthesizer related, huge John Carpenter fan. Um, And what actually led me to being a fan of modern synthwave music was my admiration and passion for 80s synth scores from the likes of Brad Fidel, who did the Terminator, which is what got him the job for this movie. Like come to me is a song that I listen to all the time, um, which he wrote and he did the lyrics to the song and it's on the soundtrack, the soundtrack for the movie, (laughs) as you heard me sing beautifully in the opening Mm. of this episode is iconic. There's some amazing songs. I miss the days when great soundtracks were, were included, especially for a horror movie. It was very rare. You think of the eighties and you think of, Dream Warriors, you think of Fright Night and among a few others, but other than The Man Behind the Mask. (laughs) That's right. Jason Lives. You don't get a lot of horror movies that had awesome tie-ins with big artists, but I mean, the score for this movie, I think, as far as how amazing and how beautiful it could be, I mean, they used electric violin. Brad Vidal came on years later and, and, and no one knew this, but a lot of those synth sounds... He used an electric violin because he wanted to go old school with that vampire-esque nature to what we thought of as vampire scores, but give it a modern 80s update. And that's why I love this movie. It is purely 80s. Make no mistake. My favorite scene in the movie is probably the nightclub scene. You get some of these great songs from this soundtrack, which if you don't own it, I highly recommend purchasing it. There's CD copies on eBay, brand new mint condition for like $20. If you want to take a, you know, a time machine back to the 80s, grab this soundtrack because not only does it include Brad Fidel's amazing synth score, but it's got all the amazing pop tracks that were included in the film. That scene for me, though, is just one of my favorites. I mean, it's as 80s as it gets, Loisos. If I could do anything right now during COVID, I would take a time machine back to that fucking nightclub in that movie. Get wasted, 
wear like my white Miami Vice outfit, which you know <laughs> that I own because you've seen me wear it out in public and dance that shit up and watch, you know, Jerry Dandridge lift a fucking 300 pound bouncer up in the air before he throws him across. the <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you said all there is to say about the the score, the the Fright Night soundtrack single done by who, Justin? The Jay Jeels band. That's right. Fright night, fright night. Who's it gonna be tonight? Woo! Thank you. That'll be all. So well, they did a video for it. So if you haven't watched the video, head over to YouTube. It's a weird video that doesn't really deeply connect to the movie in any way, but it happened. And, and it's um, there for you to watch. This is a song that many a time when I've been over and you've been drunk. Without fail. Now, now, now. Drunk. How dare you say that I've been drunk before? <laughs> Our listeners have never heard me drunk before. What do you mean? Oh, my goodness. So this is a go-to song for you uh, to put on. It's an eternal jam of jam, so I don't blame you. So we have the amazing music. And this movie, Fright Night, really left an indelible legacy. You know, there's, of course, the amazing documentary that I mentioned, You're So Cool, Brewster, which is this comprehensive documentary, the ultimate love letter uh, to fans of this movie, where they go very in-depth into the production. Um, there's a version that I guess you, uh, if you were a crowdfunder, um, if you contributed to the campaign, you were sent uh, like a four and a half hour version, right? Where they taught, where they go into... That's right. They go the into sequel, Fright Night Part 2. Which, Which I know you want to touch on. I know. Listen, I know you've been salivating because you've been foaming at the fucking mouth. You're bloodthirsty to talk about <laughs> the sequel because I told listeners, I told Loy Sauce because he had not seen the sequel. I've seen it a number of times. It's not available on like a regular domestic Blu-ray to watch right now. You can buy an import region free version. But I told him because he had never seen it. Watch it leading up to the inter- the interview the discussion of this movie for you guys the 35th anniversary discussion so he could touch on it and i could see what he thought and i'll, I'll touch is. on it all right <laughs> i hate fright night part two i hated this movie it made me so angry i was like shaking i, I was watching it on my laptop in my bed last night i was like shaking with rage because okay it's not like the original Fright Night is something that is so near and dear to me that it was like destroying the legacy or the memory that I had of Fright Night. But it takes everything about the first movie that I love. First of all, the vampire mythology is completely glossed over in this one, or rather it contradicts things that were set up in the first Fright Night. Suddenly vampires can go out in the daylight now. Okay. Suddenly, uh, you know, from scene to scene, it varies where you have vampires are, are affected by crucifixes in one scene, not in another. Uh, there's a, a scene where a werewolf, I don't even think it's a vampire taking a werewolf form like in this one. It's a werewolf played by Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> oh, God. Is, I forgot he's in that. But he, um, they they, st- they stuff roses in the werewolf's mouth and he explodes into flames. And I'm like, when when was it established that werewolves uh, were, were allergic to roses? That is a strictly vampire thing. So anyway. Um, so so in, in the words of Nick, they shit the fuck all over it. No, well, okay. They did, but... <laughs> Then you have Charlie and Peter Vincent sharing maybe a couple scenes together. They don't have the camaraderie that they did in the first movie. And there's a constant back and forth of whether, like, who believes in vampires and who doesn't. Again, from scene to scene, the movie starts out with Charlie Brewster in a psychiatrist's office saying, you know, it was Jerry Dantridge was a serial killer. He was not a vampire. Vampires don't exist. They're not real. Then when the vampires enter the movie, Charlie is convinced right away that they're vampires. 
And he has to convince Peter Vincent that they're vampires, even though Peter Vincent started the movie off as 100% believing in vampires and recounting the exploits that he and Charlie had in the last movie. And suddenly Peter Vincent doesn't believe in vampires anymore. So it's this constantly flip-flop of stuff that the audience has already known. We know that vampires exist. We know that these characters have fought vampires before. So why- We watched the first movie. Exactly. It's so, it's like treading water. And then the special effects aren't- I know what you really want to do here. I really know what you want to do here. What you really want to do is a part two to this episode and you want to do fright night part two it seems as though you have a lot to say about the sequel to fright night the special effects suck charlie brewster's a like a, a awful human being like he constantly ignores his girlfriend which i know is a running theme because he does it in this movie too i don't know to me like there's no evil ed there's no amy it just doesn't have which that same- should there have been should there have been because we are closing out on our views and our discussion on the first Fright Night here. Should there have been an evil lead? I mean, we know that at the time it was a normal thing. We had to have that last scare and that Tom Holland had tried out a, a few different ways to end the movie. His original way of ending the movie, the original Fright Night, was to have Charlie and Amy in bed about to basically have sexual relations. And they're watching Peter Vincent on the television. And he was about to turn into a vampire. And the, the studio were like, you you can't do this. You can't have a bad ending, a down ending to this movie. It needs to end in a happy way. So they changed it. We're led to believe that Charlie's about to get laid and that he does get laid after this. But he goes to the window, looks out. He sees the glowing eyes. And then, you're so cool, Brewster. And I'll never be able to do that cackle. So I'll never try again. I promise you. Well, that was so that was the original idea as well for Fright Night Part 3. So Tom Holland was developing a Part 3. And I think he's still developing it, although I don't think it will happen at this point. But his proposed... Bring all the actors back. Bring them all back. Well, Roddy McDowell's dead, unfortunately. So um, CGM. <laughs> so his uh, proposed plot for that movie was that Charlie Bruce- Brewster would be a single father. You know, his children become convinced that there's a vampire next door and that vampire is evil ed so he would be the villain of the movie and i think that's a really cool idea but i don't think it'll ever be made at this point but it never will no never so (sighs) i would have liked to have seen something like that or the comic book series i thought um had kind of a really cool I, i i can't really track down anywhere where you could buy the comic series but you would have seen more of the adventures of charlie and peter vincent as they do battle with aliens and werewolves and other supernatural creatures so there's so many directions they could have taken it. So why in part two do they rehash the same movie? They repeat scenes of Peter now, Vincent. Now, now, Peter Haas. Vincent has his mirror and he's looking now, at now, the vampires. Now. And I'm like, we just did this in the last one. It's I know. I stale. know. See, this is fresh. Ladies and gentlemen, I this is fresh because you just watched it recently. I don't mean to be angry. I know a lot of people I'm, are fans of that movie, but I just... No, I, I like it. See, I like the sequel, but for, you know what? I think I'm going to save why I like the sequel for our eventual Fright Night Part 2 discussion in our review. We're going to have to do a B-side. It's obvious. <laughs> if this... If, listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this episode, I'm going to put, put a poll up in the Hopesters Dumpster, which is our official fan group for the Epic Film Guys podcast. Go to facebook.com slash epicfilmguys and go join our fan group. I'm going to put a poll up if you want to hear us talk about Fright Night Part 2 after this. I know it's not very beloved. I know it's not very popular. It's not readily available everywhere to watch, but for some reason you were able to find it in 1080p HD to watch on YouTube. So, right? That's where you watched it? That's where so I, I watched guess it. It's on I YouTube. guess it's available for free to watch. But see, I have a lot of love for it because my man Tommy Lee Wallace, you know, the man that made Halloween 3. 
the man that made the It miniseries, the man that was the production designer on Halloween 1. Um, I love him with a passion. He's a great guy, and uh, I, I love what he did with the movie. He was always throwing stuff at the last minute, and he always had to try to do what he could with it. So he was like the fixer-upper on whatever he was handed. But this is 35 years of... Fright Night and Justin. Listen to that. Justin, your final No Peter Vincent. You're no Peter Vincent. Your your final thoughts on Fright Night, please. Okay, there you go. There you go. This is one of the best vampire movies ever made. This is my favorite vampire movie of all time. Wow. It is most certainly. I think as far as like how many times have you been over? And yes, you can word use the word drunk, I guess, because <laughs> you used it earlier. And I've said, let's watch Fright Night. And you're you in know, your like, drunken stupor. You're like, hey, Brian, let's watch Fright Night. Well, let's make it clear. You know, when Alamo Drafthouse was still open and you were still booking movies and I was still the Terror Tuesday horror host there, um, I would beg all the time, constantly, let's book Fright Night. Because the, the time that I saw Fright Night on the big screen at Alamo Drafthouse, D.C. area, Ashburn, when I first moved down here, uh, there was like three people in the audience because it was booked at like an 1130 showing and no one came. So, so we really wanted people to celebrate it but i mean we, we i love this movie. we've built up that horror community and this would would have been the summer for fright night but unfortunately for you know for the anniversary we wanted to have a screening but um thanks covid it is it is loy sauce the camp cult classic of monstrous proportions nicely done i just yep yeah, i just I, there's nothing more to say about this movie. The score is amazing by Brad Fidel. Tom Holland's script is witty. It's fun. It's scary. It's spooky. There's suspense in there. All of the actors are good in the movie. No one sucks in it. It gave us an iconic main villain that should be more appreciated in, in, in you know in the horror genre and the horror realm. A lot of people put out all these different portraits and all these different pictures of horror icons. And Jerry Dandridge is very much left out of the time all the time. And it really upsets me. Um, it's just fun. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, and I'm going to, I'm going to use this comparison too, because I've done it before on the show, but I would compare it to like a creaky, rickety haunted house, dark ride that you would I find. I didn't steal that from you. I didn't steal that. No, I know, you. but I'm just saying, you know, that you would find that on a beach boardwalk or a carnival, the pacing, I think is a little starty stoppy. And there's like, um, you know, kind of lurches along, but it's so like, I have so much love in my heart for rickety spook house rides and I have so much love in my heart for Fright Night. I mean, I think it's the perfect summer movie to put on in a Halloween party or on a stormy summer night, just like this one as we record. So Justin, 35 years of Fright Night. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you audience, listening audience for tuning in. We love you. I just want to let our listeners know um, the, the both of us put a lot of effort into trying to make this episode happen. Um, you mentioned a lot of starts and stops. We had those with trying to make this, this happen. This episode so. was cursed. This is our third attempt to record. It is a death curse. There is Bring a death in crazy curse. fucking Ralph in here. Put that sound bite in right now because uh, for some reason, we just had the hardest time making this happen. But I'm so happy that we were able to sit down and talk about this movie for you guys and appreciate it and celebrate it with you for 35 years of in what's, in my opinion, one of the best vampire movies ever made and one of the funnest 80s horror movies of all time. Uh, this is for you guys. So whenever we we release a b-side we're doing this for you so we want to hear what you guys have to think about the movie and what you want to hear from us as far as future b-sides the epic film guys love you so so much we are all about our listeners and our followers so if you like what you hear make sure to leave us a five-star review on itunes i mean it literally helps us so so much and it lets us hear what you guys are thinking about what we're doing as far as content is concerned and what you'd like to get more out of this content and you can also as well as and you can also yeah. follow us on social media 
find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Epic Film Guys. And as Justin mentioned earlier, feel free to join our Facebook fan group, The Hobster's Dumpster, where you can hang out with us, talk horror movies, and suggest uh, future episodes, what you'd like to see. That's right. And also, Loisas's neck is milky white. It's fresh and it's lean, and it deserves a bite. So if you want to bite Loisas's neck for any reason at all... I would love to I have mean, my throat bit. Yeah, dude, seriously. I mean, if you're, if you're thirsty for some blood, some Loisas blood, he's very pure. He's, he's the purest thing on this show. I mean, I don't think he's a virgin. I'm pretty sure he's not. Definitely not a virgin. Actually... <laughs> Actually, never mind. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure he's not. But I mean, we're willing to to loan him out for you for a small fee. But no, seriously, though, guys, thank you for listening. We love doing these B-sides. We look forward to doing them. If you're interested in what else we have as far as B-sides, we just did Poltergeist last month. Uh, We did our 40th anniversary of Friday the 13th. We might as well mention real quick at the end of this because we don't know when the next time we're going to you know, discuss another horror movie. If you guys want to hang out with the Epic Film Guys, we will be at Camp Blood at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater on Labor Day weekend in Lehigh, in Pennsylvania. So we're going to talk more about that in our main episode in, in the coming weeks. But if you want to see us, masks sworn, six feet apart, maybe a drink in hand, who knows what's going to happen, what kind of shenanigans we'll get into. Um, but we will be there, and we will be there in all our glory, Epic Film Guys. Come hang out. So, yeah, that's right. But until next time... We will see you at the movies. <laughs> Buzz off, evil. Get the fuck out of here.